Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we are discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings for a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Two excellent guests join me this week, so I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim Jones. Good to be back here again, Phil. Thanks again for invitation. Uh, I'm the director of the Developer Tribe and uh, manager of the Sterling Ladies University Women's Football Club. Uh, and also taking a PhD at Stirling University in the role of the sports coach developer. And my name is Chris Jones. I am Tim's older, greyer brother, and I am a full-time private tutor working at Core Learning Tutoring in Jersey. Prior to that, primary school teacher for 14 years, involved in um, social and emotional development of children. And actually prior to that, football coach and photographer. Fantastic. Gents, absolute pleasure to have you both on. First, uh, yeah, first sibling pair we've had. So um, looking forward to, to getting the, the, the gossip on each other. I think that'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> just before we get cracking, uh, just a reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for the links that we discuss uh, and links to other quality content. So, Tim, we're going to jump straight in with you. Uh, what are you going to chat to us about? Sure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've offered up uh, a white paper by the Aspen Institute, which is uh, based in North America, uh, that looks at a call for coaches to develop social and emotional skills in youth sports. Uh, I think, Phil, you'll, you'll know well from conversations we've had before that this is an important part for me. Uh, and as you've heard from Chris's introduction, it's important to him, too. Um, so it's a, it's a white paper, um, but it's very academically underpinned, uh, but it is for practical coaching. Um, so I'll just go through the seven principles that they have within that and one or two of the practical implications, because uh, I know that's the important part. Um, the first is know every athlete's story. Find out what you can about those players that, and, and young people that you're working with. So one of the things that I've taken from that that I like to do is to ask them uh, some, some cursory questions. Who's their favorite player? Who do they live with? What's their favorite part of practice? And those, just those three questions can give you a lot of information about those players that you're working with. Second, establish a supportive team culture. Um, so the one that I've picked out for that is set high expectations and clear limits on behavior. Well, I think uh, you've perhaps had guests on before talking about driven benevolence, some of that research that's come through from Lara Bercial, um, and we can certainly unpack that later on. Third, celebrate effort. Uh, and the one that I've picked from that is establish a ritual for letting go of mistakes. We can definitely give specific feedback and, and as it says, celebrate effort as coaches. Uh, but also, what are we doing to support players in letting go of the mistakes so that we can focus back on uh, the more positive side of things? Four, focus on skills that matter. Uh, and the one that I've picked out there is have players set goals and intentions regarding their development. IDPs, individual development plans, are a really common part of uh, coaching practice now. But how much of a voice do young people have in the development of that uh, themselves? Five, be a role model. I picked out a phrase that I like to use, live the values. Uh, and one of those is managing conflicts with calmness and clarity, acknowledging players' feelings and emotion. We can talk about how that's done. Six, be coachable ourselves. 
Uh, and what I picked out from that is collect athlete feedback. So uh, one that has been useful for me in the past is the CART Q uh, motivational climate questionnaire, which comes from uh, Sophia Jowett and the work on coach athlete relationships. And seventh and final, join forces. And I've picked out getting the parents involved, which can be a tough thing to do, um, especially when you are working with 20 players. Uh, and I'm sure Chris will talk about working with uh, students in classrooms and having 28, 30 of them. Uh, but getting the parents involved to, to find out whether things are transferring are what you're working on and the development of skills within the youth sports setting transferring into the, the home setting as well. Um, so those are the seven. And um, yeah, if uh, listeners want to know how they got to those seven, then the white paper is there. No, brilliant. I don't think you need me here, Phil. This all sounds amazing. <laughs> Job done. Well, that, that was going to be my question. I, that's a brilliant seven. And it makes it sound almost too easy. I mean, what realistically as a, this, a, a new coach or a, a coach in these one of these environments, how long do we think it's going to take? And I appreciate that's a that's an incredibly open ended question, but I'm wondering like what what's our own expectation for a timeline to be able to kind of establish and build this into the culture or the environment in which we operate. That's a really important question, Phil, and um, I think my first answer to it would be that if we're allowing our players to make mistakes, then we should also be cognizant of that with us as coaches. Um, when you're trying to put in an environment like this that supports team culture and, and you're trying to hit these seven principles, we're not always going to get it right. Um, and you mentioned time. Time is something that, particularly for grassroots coaches, we perhaps don't have a lot of. You know, they might have full-time jobs, they might have families, there's a lot going on. But one of the things that I try to say is that we do have time to work on these things and you can find those times within sessions as players arrive. I think I've mentioned to you before, you know, ask them what the score is today for them. You know, is, are they winning? Is it a draw? Are they losing 3-0? You know, we can get some understanding of where their headspace is at um, during the session. Is there little transition moments between practices? If we're a little bit clearer on how we move across a session, then we can use those moments just to check in with players as they go across to grab drinks. We can even use that time to actually observe what they're doing during that time. And that's something that I think gets lost a lot um, as uh, coaches are uh, focusing so much on getting through the session. So my first thing that I would suggest is simplify what you're doing simplify the session so that you don't have to focus so hard on that and that gives you the time to have some uh, energy towards these seven I'll say I'll add to that I've watched him deliver sessions sort of across the years really uh, sometimes audio recordings um, along with um, you know video footage of, of him at work and uh when Tim was saying live the values, I think one thing as an observer I can say is that Tim as a coach appears to have time. So there'll be play is occurring in front of him, but he is quite still or quite calm in that environment, which I can only presume allows enough time and enough sort of processing to be able to absorb what's going on and know what you want to put back into it as a coach. And, and I guess that stems from having a confidence and a simplicity and a security in the session that's being delivered. I'd echo that 
I think it has to be the same in the classroom from seeing brilliant practitioners in the past where everything just has a, an ease to it. Nothing's hurried or forced or rushed. So um, yeah, I sort of echo, echo that in, in what I've seen of Tim so far. How much do you guys think is, is that about a innate confidence in your understanding of the topic? Because I often wonder that, do you know what I mean? That the, the people that know it the best, are they just the ones that, that seem to do it easier than anybody else? If, if you're not maybe 100% clear in your own mind what it is you're trying to deliver, does that maybe manifest itself in looking hurried or rushed or not, not having that time or kind of concentrating maybe too much on the mechanics of the session rather than actually the people within it? I'll, I'll thank Chris for his compliment and then... Uh, give you an example of where I really haven't been uh, calm and collected Um, and I think you've already touched on it with the question Phil when I have tried to deliver things that have been too complex too complicated um, and in my reflections on that are largely down to what was my ego as a coach you know I'm going to be able to deliver this look at me be so brilliant and forgetting that I'm there for the players what happened in those moments was I wasn't able to be aware of a, my own self-awareness, but also the situational awareness of what was happening around me because I was so focused on, Oh, this session isn't going how I planned. Um, And the moment that I'm really proud of from that particular memory I'm thinking of is that I made the decision of, right, well, this hasn't worked. My session plan is out the window. Let's go back to the things that do, does work. I know they work. And then I'm going to step in and work on those things, uh, work on my theme where I can. We, again, we have to be gentle with ourselves as coaches that those moments will happen. We're trying something new, whether that is the practice design or whether it's that we're trying to focus a little bit more on social emotional competency development. It won't always work. And that's okay. I think that's great to hear because my, my immediate sort of response to your question, Phil, was, again, just with my teacher hat on, the difficulty of being in a, a class of however many kids is that in an hour's time or a specific unit of time that is not necessarily conducive to the subject or, or what you're trying to deliver, you have to get to a, a, a set goal. There's a target. You want to get to the end of an objective. And uh, I appreciate that within the, the coaching um, sphere as well. I think some of the best people that I've seen at work, the best practitioners are those that actually don't overly stress as to whether or not they make that objective. So to hear Tim say, he went down one avenue, if that's not working out, let's try a different avenue. You end up with a different achievement at the end of the session, but for the betterment of the players, then I think I I wholeheartedly concur that that's the way to go. Do you think that ultimately comes down to how we plan? So I, I think a lot of people would go, you know, they're not the X's and O's type planners. They're not, right, I'm going to scribble everything down to the to the nth degree on a piece of paper. Because I, and, and the research would, I guess, support this, that initially coaches are very much planning activities. So maybe we just need, and, and I, if I'm honest, like I can't think of any CPD I've done that really touched on planning in any great detail. But certainly when it did, it wasn't around how do we socially construct a session? 
how do we build something that is going to engage people and then let's go to the activities almost as the last thing because they're probably in lots of ways the least important bit but i i do often feel i'd still struggle with that now do you know what i mean i sit down i plan i'm like well we've got this it's like no 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 flip it like what <laughs> what do i want the people to be doing and then can i build an activity to support that and i i, I do find that challenging but i wonder how much of an issue that is just across the board yeah, no, I really hear that too. I, I'm in a very privileged position now that I work one-to-one. So I'm, I've, I've, I've coached one-to-one uh, a little bit, which is a, a fascinating experience because you have to balance, uh, you know, you're just working with one player, you know, how much energy do they bring to, to, the, to the grass? How much uh, can you, you know, what distance can you ask them to cover? Uh, how much contact time can they have with the ball? How much rest time do they need? All those sorts of um, idiosyncrasies. I don't know if that's the right word, but all those subtleties perhaps. Um, but in terms of being able to work one-to-one as opposed to on a group, the, the luxury of that is to be able to so quickly be presented with signposts as to what this person needs or what this player needs. And, uh, I, I tend to plan rather down to the nth degree. That's my style, but I've taught myself as Tim was saying before, to be gentle with myself and not worry if I don't manage to follow that, that pathway and to allow the, the, um, the digressions and the tangents to, to come in spades if, you know, if that's what that person and what that session needs. Um, I think to really try and truly answer your, your question, Phil, I think it comes back a little bit to Tim just saying about time. I think as a coach and to reflect and to look back over a session is to give ourselves the greatest chance of making the next session a better one. And uh, again, and again and again and perhaps there'll be coaches out there that, that will will agree that actually as more time passes planning can lessen because you start to really innately know the squad or the players or the needs of the team um, and as a result things can loosen and perhaps in that 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 greater freedom greater achievement comes i love that that's that's, that's my a bit. bit. No, that's a, that's, a bit, that's a bit of a you know field of dreams moment there, isn't it? As I, I love that. That's a brilliant. Yeah, as the freedom can comes, I, maybe you get more. Can I jump on the same question as well? So I mean, you know, what Chris has said is absolutely right. But to to go from a, a sort of a team setting as well, that there was an important part to my master's dissertation on on this kind of stuff in football talent development environments. So it was professional academies, and a real distinction between is this stuff, social-emotional competency development, a prescribed curriculum or a hidden curriculum? And for all of the coaches that I spoke to, it was either um, completely out of sight and they didn't know what they were working on, or it was this slightly middle position of a hidden curriculum, meaning we do know what it is that we're looking for in order order to develop those with our, our players and ourselves but that I'm not trying to hit one particular aspect of it today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to allow these things to emerge in front of me and then I'll pick up those opportunities to work on relationship skills, their self-awareness, their self-management. And that gives the coach and then the teacher, I suppose, in Chris's situation, the freedom to go, okay, I can catch that moment. It's, it's caught. It's a caught moment. It's not taught. And once you make that flip of how we're looking at it, it gave me an awful lot more freedom in terms of my planning. Mm, nice. 
you think there's something in there? I'm thinking, I guess the, a big distinction between teaching and coaching in this sense is actually I could coach with three or four other people. So I, I could just be on social interaction. Do you know what I mean? I, that could just be my plan for tonight. So I'm just going to be watching, observing and, and catching those moments. I don't really need to talk technical or tactical detail because other people could be doing that. I could just have that opportunity. And, and I, I, I wonder then actually in from a teaching perspective, when you've got to do everything and if you're a sole coach when you've got to do everything again how how do you find that balance of i still need to and maybe there's an external judgment i still need to be seen to be delivering something like a free play is always a challenge there in a session isn't it there's parents on a touchline and they might be paying for it they might not be whatever but they're, they're kind of, people are just judging like he's not said anything for five minutes like what what's he doing well, he's not working very hard there, is he? Well, he's not a good coach. Like, how much of all of this starts to merge into the identity we have as coaches and actually how maybe we, we're forced in some ways to miss some of these opportunities? Well, what a, what a concept. I mean, Phil, if, if you were to open a school that had more than one teacher in a class, um, I think it would be an immensely successful school, not necessarily academically, but across the board for the development of the children to become what they'd like to become. Mm -hmm. I've had the privilege of working at a school called Marnell in Basingstoke, which had uh, amazing leadership, tough leadership. You know, we had to work hard to, to earn our place in that school, um, but very much the support and the funding and the financing was to bring people into the school. It was to have bodies in the building. Uh, and I, did a lot of my early teaching, a lot of my early learning as a co-teacher, which is relatively unheard of. So exactly as you say, Phil, I could be alongside my colleague who would be delivering the technicalities of a lesson, but it's exactly the same in the sports. We, did, you know, we, we replicated this in PE, in music, in arts. Uh, and my responsibility could be to look after that group over there who had shown particular, a particular response to this work the previous time heightened anxiety, uncertainty, uh, but it also works at the, other, at the other end of that scale as well, that they'd absolutely flown, no problems whatsoever, go and be with them and find out how much further can you take them. So for the parents looking in, uh, into that school experience or that school environment, I think they could see that they were getting an incredibly good um, education and um, development provided for their children because everybody worked flat out, no matter what facet you were given, no matter what your, your slant was on that, that day. In terms of, for me, in terms of being a coach on a coaching, in a coaching um, scenario, my mind actually takes me to being a referee at a, on a Saturday morning for the school football team and having the confidence to allow play to go on after a clear foul has been committed, knowing that there's 20 parents behind me, all grumbling and complaining that I haven't made that decision because it was their son or their daughter that got, that got fouled and they want that to be validated before anything else happens. So it's a different experience for a teacher, hands up, being in the closed walls of a classroom or, or the safety, if you like, of a school building compared to being out in the wide open and being observed almost constantly as a coach. I also yeah. wonder. Oh, go on, Tim. Yeah, well, just to jump on, I mean, the, 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 uh, there's 
a complication I think you were pointing towards, Phil, of like the free play game be the teacher style stuff that, yeah, there was that misinterpretation of I'm hands off, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there and then I'm, I'm not involved. I mean, the, the, the anecdote that Chris has given of, of being referee, there's still a conscious decision being made. It, you're, you're not abdicating your role as coach. Uh, you're still involved. Um, what you're doing is, as I mentioned on the last time I was on your pod, this idea of skillful neglect. So being able to notice something happening but make a conscious decision to let it go in order to then focus on, on, on the next bit or to see if the, I mean, in, in this. We, we need like little, little signs, don't we? like a little sign you hold that says, I have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> and another one that says, I am thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. Or another one right. going, I have actually done it, you know, so that people behind you or around can go, oh, okay. A, a light bulb above the heads, you know, that just <laughs> says that the thought process is going on. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, in this space, you know, so say, so, say you're taking something like self-regulation and that's what you're working on with, with young players. You know, one of them gets uh, fouled. You let the game go on. You know, young players' reactions are usually going to be, coach, why, why have you let them get away with that? Or maybe to run after that player or to have some kind of hot feeling naturally as a result of that. How often do we shut that down too soon when they haven't given them a chance to actually self-regulate, haven't given them a chance maybe to negotiate conflict if it goes a little bit further. Of course we want to keep the players safe and that's the noticing part. But are we allowing them to have the opportunities to develop these things themselves as well as us being involved in it? And that again comes to that time. Give them time to work on this stuff themselves. I think that's really good, Tim. And it just made me think, I don't know how helpful this is in this discussion per se, but this notion of time and the development of the self and how a coach can actively support that in someone else just makes me think, you know, what's the real world scenarios that parents and children or young players see? It's one of, um, you know, multi-million, billion pound and dollar industries requiring instant results instant change and a, a manager comes in splashed all over the papers they're given 100 million if they get the right players or the right players thrive or stay injury free and so on perhaps success comes and it quite literally buys them time how often is a manager sat in a press conference and saying i i don't know about my future ask me about today's match but already there's at the back of that mind or the um the players' minds, the club's minds. Yeah, we're going to give this guy another four weeks. We're going to give this lady another six weeks. And unless something starts to happen readily, immediately, how much more time can we give it? Because actually we're in the process of making money or being a part of an industry rather than building long-term. And I think different sports across the globe present interesting models and different models that perhaps counter that slightly. As a Manchester United fan, very, very, uh, very happy to say that at the moment, uh, we, I personally am absolutely delighted that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been given the time that he's been given. And I think, you know, the fact that we've collected, bought or acquired players at either end of the playing career scale in someone like Sancho and someone like Ronaldo, 
I think hopefully shows that or, or those players must believe that that club has something to offer them in the short, medium and long term of their career. And I think for, for, for yourselves as coaches, for myself as a tutor, we are under that pressure that unless something starts to change tangibly, noticeably, how much more of an opportunity we, will we be given? And perhaps that comes back to answering a little bit more of your question, Phil, about planning. I know that as a tutor, I want my little, my little lad or my little lass here to go back to the parent and say, I can add up three digit numbers. And it's great to give them that takeaway and that confidence boost. But even though they may have picked that up as the tutor, my next step may well be, well, they've got that, but I still feel and believe that they have a fundamental misunderstanding of place value. So I've given them something to go away with, but the work has really yet to, to begin. So I don't know if that, that sort of contrast between what is seen out there and actually the reality of the work that we do and attempt to do can be very, very far apart. And that, that can be hard to reconcile, I think, in players' minds, in parents' minds, um, and perhaps in um, other stakeholders' minds of the clubs that you work in. I think that's a brilliant point. And I've, I've probably, I catch myself doing this because I'll have some thoughts I think are good. And then over a number of episodes, I just repeat them. So I get found out that I don't have that many good thoughts. But I, I often think about just actually how quickly we expect people to learn. In a yes. professional environment, you'd, you'd kind of be going session to session, day to day, certainly week to week. If they can't address a fault between a Saturday and a Saturday, they're, they're probably not going to be a pro for very long. Yeah. Well, if that's the top end of the game, like yes. what what happens to us when we're, you know, X number of levels removed from that? Like realistically, how quickly can a community sports person, young child, you know, teenager, whatever, actually pick something up like again comes back to your point around time just because I write it on a session plan doesn't actually mean it's achievable that genuinely might take me six months or then yes. or us six months rather than well you know suddenly we're being judged on we've well, had three weeks and you haven't solved your defending yeah like that's because they don't really know what defense is like they've probably got to experience this in a lot of different ways before we can even comprehend the the process and the principles and the experience and everything else like there's just no lived experience of this and we're trying to coach something uh, yeah it just becomes you kind of then go well jesus coaching's hard like teaching's yeah. hard. well the, the 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 art the art form i mean those seven points that tim's presented the the, the subtlety the way that, that the spider's web that they will they will be one interlinking with the other and how you pull on one side and then the other little bit ripples over here uh, positively or negatively, is a, is a continual learning curve, is a continual journey. And it just made me think, you know, you're saying that at that top end, that professional level that, you know, obviously I've, I've never experienced. When there's a manager who sits in front of a press conference and actually says, you know, this group of players has a lot to learn, the, the report or the ripple or the feedback is an awful lot of questioning and, and self-doubt or disbelief from the journalists saying, but they're professionals. How do they not know? This is what they do. But I'm a teacher and I still have loads to learn. And if I'm not a better teacher next year than I am now, then I'm doing my clients a disservice. If I just continue to plod along doing what I've always done, then I'm not evolving myself, let alone, let alone them. So, yeah, to, to ripple it down to a grassroots level of what can be expected of a, a community coach, a, 
primary school coach, a, a University of Stirling manager. You know, I think that that's a critical consideration for the players, the coach and the people that expect of them. I mean, what does it feel like to you, Tim, in, in Sterling, in terms of the time that you've been given? Because let's yeah. be fair, you've had ages and not much has changed. No, yeah. <laughs> there we go. So about 30 minutes, but now... Yeah. I've yeah, been, yeah. Build, been building up to it, Phil, been building up to it. The first gauntlet has been set. Um, yeah, no, I've been very fortunate, really, with the way that seasons have felt uh, in terms of what game time we've had, that... Um, despite there being an awful lot of disruption in the team that I'm working with uh, over the last nine months, that has some of that has been um, totally about out of our control. Some of it has been within our remit. Um, I have had time, um, but I would suspect that, you know, if I was to uh, go out and our team is in a relegation position this year, then yeah, maybe my job wouldn't continue on. And, but I'm also fortunate that working with a university team, there is some understanding from management within high performance sport there um, of a non-linear program, of that it takes time for young players to, to learn. I mean, the, the average age of my squad is around 20. Um, you know, we do have players that aren't students, but you know, they, they're still very much within that developmental area. Um, so, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have the time that I've been given and, and, and some of those improvements are, are happening. Um, so, yeah, watch, the, watch this space on that. But uh, you know, to jump on what you'd previously said as well, you know, that, that aspect of being coachable, you know, one of those principles that was from that seven, you, you spoke about it there, Chris, of you know, my teaching capabilities, I, I need to be constantly looking at it and consistently evolving. And that's an important part. And then finally, to, to round off the, the, the planning part, um, there's a, a concept from tactical periodization of neurobiological economy, which links in with spiral curriculum. So especially uh, in experienced coaches, you quite often see that they'll, they'll do it. And I certainly did this. A new session, a new practice every week, every, every practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll find something new and I'll throw it out. New, 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 new. And that sort of inherently makes sense because you're trying to work on the things that are cropping up. But what happens is that players spend half the practice and possibly the coach as well, figuring out how the practice works. When the real gem of it, the real nuggets to get at are the actual learning moments. Yes. So uh, something I took from my time at the, uh, with the uh, Juventus International Academies was a phrase of same practice, different pr principles same principles different practice mm, nice i like that and yeah I, i've taken it with me everywhere since that you can use the same practice and do something different so yeah. if, if i describe one there's a game from uh, the football mashup program from years ago from the fa called empty the net simple small-sided game 8v8 9v9 whatever it is three balls in each net one ball in play when you score you get to take a ball from your goal and play so the idea is empty your net get rid of all your balls so in this game you would have to score four times in a row you can use that to work on playing out from the back you can use that to work on defending from the front you can use that to work on playing through the third it's the same game and, and the importance is that you're not having to say much 
after the players already know what it is. Yes. Hey, do you remember from three weeks ago, we played this game, Empty the Net? At least one of your kids is going to remember <laughs> once they look at it, right? Okay, can you tell everyone else? Yep, they get to tell everyone else. And now they're working on their communication, on their maybe even conflict negotiation if players aren't listening mm -hmm. to them and so on. Meanwhile, you're just observing and remembering what it is that you're, you're trying to work on. Um, and again, it just gives you that time to be more aware of what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, it's, it's wholly unrelated, but perhaps um, logical to chuck, chuck this in as well. That, you know, at a very, very young level, children's level, they love to do the same thing over and over and over. And that, that ranges from which Disney movie they sit and watch to you know what game they play at the table with the family it is it's that repetition the security the comfort that comes through that and with all of those things in place with if any anxieties or um concerns are very very much in a, a regulated zone a, a very comfortable place then yes there's the space and the opportunity to then push on other learning and i think i think you had a phrase tim about what's taught and what's caught so you you create that space and that time then to be able to work in in that manner if it's all right, Phil, just to throw a question in to, to Tim of, of, his, of those seven. And I, this is a slightly loaded question because I've got a little anecdote about Tim that I'd like to throw in. Of those seven, Tim, which is the most important for you when you first turn up a, a team? Because you, you've, you've had a, a big turnover of um, managerial positions and so on due to traveling the globe, dealing with the pandemic, all sorts of good, genuine reasons. So you've been through this more than a lot of other coaches, perhaps, in terms of stability and, and so on. Which one stands out for you? The second one for me. Um, I think you can start the first one straight away. Know every athlete's story. Of course, you can start that, but that takes time. You know, you, you'll, you'll get a sense of who they are from some of the questions that I suggested asking, um, you mm. know, and checking in with players regularly. But your understanding of that player evolves as they evolve. Um, but that second one, that's what I would go for. That's the sort of, it's tough to do, but that is the low-hanging fruit. Um, and to involve the players as much as you can. So, you know, in the current, current uh, team that I'm involved in, because I came in as head coach kind of halfway through a season that was a little bit bitty here and there because we, we weren't training at times, then we didn't have games at times. Some of that had to happen a little bit on the fly as we were going, you know, we catch certain things and kind of go, I don't think that's what we're going to be doing here. Or asking the players, you know, do you think what we did there is what we want? And they know what you're referring to. You don't actually need to unpack it further than that. Mm -hmm. But recently we have spent some time working on values, goal setting, individual development plans. So each of my players has IDPs. I'm actually meeting some of them today. Um, and we co-construct there's a format to it and I know some of the things that I would want to put in there but it's really important to first of all find out what they want to put in there and then mm -hmm. you can start to guide and work with them and you find out some some awesome things especially about like what they think of themselves positionally you know you might have been playing them at right back but they think they're a, a left mid you know oh it's happened you know yeah. and you're like, oh, hey. wow okay well that's where you're going to be more comfortable. All right, well, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Our next friendly, I'll give you some time there. Go and show me. And it's, it's things like that that then really helps to just develop that 
as it says, supportive team culture. And I, I'll, I'll refer back to that term of driven benevolence. You can really want to compete and really hate losing. And I definitely hate losing. And still be benevolent. Still find the time to really care for your players and care for the environment that you have. That's a really tough balance to find. I'm not sure I've got there yet, but that's what I'm aiming for. Well, we continue to learn, don't we? If it's all right, Phil, my, my little anecdote really was just to say that I remember one of Tim's primary um, coaching roles that he took up in Jersey uh, with the St. John's ladies team. Now, was that, was that your first role? That was, that was my first role, uh, yeah, and uh, it was an adult ladies team, uh, most of which were older than me, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. I seem to remember they thought that you were older than me as well, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah that was good. I remember that, yeah. yeah. But the, um, my point, <laughs> my compliment really, this is thinly veiled, <laughs> was actually, uh, I remember, because I, I was, Tim was involved in coaching with me and then I became involved in coaching with Tim. Tim very much um, took over the mantle and took it to fantastic heights. But I remember going to the cup final against First Tower at Springfield, which you won 1-0 in the second half of extra time. Yeah. Was that your first season in charge or second? That was the end of the first season, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. And the reason, I, the reason I just mentioned this, Phil, is that it was very apparent to me, really, at, at, at pitch side, that the first tower side, technically and potentially tactically, were better than the St. John's side that Tim was working with. But what Tim had managed to change was the belief in the team. And when that goal went in... I mean, I remember the, the feeling. I mean, it was, you know, we were punching the air and it, it was, we, we, it was spectacular. It was, a, but it, it marked a changing of the guard at that moment in time because everything that Tim had been giving this lady's side in terms of belief and you were saying there about that supportive team culture. It was just, it was so interesting to hear you, you, you voiced that. That was so clear and that was so evident and they got the just reward of, winning that final and they deserve to win that final. They deserve to take that team to extra time. And from that moment on, I would argue that perhaps when you went back to pre-season, that then created the time and space for you to work with a squad more technically and tactically because they believed you by then that actually if they worked together and if they stuck together, good things would come. Yes, well, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the second season, you know, we, we, we performed even, even better. And you're right, it, it gave the platform for being able to work on some of those other things. And I mean, I was learning a hell of a lot as a, as a coach at that time, uh, level one. Uh, um, as I said, you know, some of that planning. I mean, it all, so the things that I did then that I would never dream of doing now, I'll give you an example. You know, you have a game on a Sunday and on Tuesday, I try to fix everything. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I do, I do a drill on shooting, a drill on crossing, a drill on defending 1v1 and blast the players. You know, they're going from, you know, set, part of session to session. To, I'd never do that now. And, and, you know, you learn as you go. Um, but that culture side of things has always been important to me. And uh, there's an interesting... Uh, for me anyway, uh, an interview that I had with the local telly before I went off to the US and we'd just won the league. Um, and one of the comments I made was, they're such good friends. Mm. 
and that some of that was natural, but I had new players coming in and they became really good friends with each other. And, and that's not to say that within teams, you're not going to have players who don't particularly like each other or don't maybe get on as well. But I think you can still call them friends if they're working towards the same goal and the same, the same aspect of what we're trying to achieve. And that's where we'd got to with it. Um, yeah, massively fond memories. And we recently had the Jersey women's uh, team come over and play us in which there were two players who used to play for me uh, all those years ago in Jersey. And yeah, the hugs that I received from those two were, were well worth any of the time I ever spent with them. Yeah, awesome. I think that's brilliant. Just, uh, yeah, I guess it. I love hearing stories like that. It, it shifts us away from this. I would chat about it on the in the comments on the developer tribe, like the the binary argument that you, to win you, you you have to be disliked or you know you can't care or you can't you can't have an emotional connection to the group and just all this type of stuff. And I, I just think social media is terrible for this. And I, I'll hold my hand up; I've definitely been there and done it. But I'd I'd like to think the learning is being far more considered. And I don't think it's about always sitting sitting on the fence in the middle, but actually just I think just recognizing it. I, I just see it in so many more places now whether it's feedback or discussions with you know directors of of rugby or or managers or whoever else you're kind of dealing with you can just kind of get this vibe that they're like no 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 you've got to you've got to be one or the other and you're just going well no i, I don't what when did that become a choice in coaching that like i can't I, it was almost insinuated in a conversation the other day that because the players like me that's not good and like we'll we'll lose less because i'm liked and i'm like i'm not going out there to be liked. like that's not the objective it helps no. absolutely yeah. some of them won't some of them will but like let's not get lost in in something that is is actually just a massive distraction like we want to create a really positive engaging environment where everyone knows that everyone else cares yeah very much no that's brilliant phil i totally totally agree i can remember and i tried it I can remember really early doors in my teaching career being told, suggested, recommended um, by an older colleague um, for the first three weeks, don't smile. When you get your new class in September, September the 4th or the 5th always makes me wake up with a little bit of a shiver and a shudder because remember, like, right, here we go, beginning of the journey. Um, I said, yeah, first, first three weeks, don't smile. So that would be a, a half of a term. So my maths isn't great, despite being a maths tutor. It'll be a sixth of the year. For a sixth of the year of that time that you have with that class, don't smile. And they really meant it. And if it worked for them, then, you know, fair play if they managed to somehow turn that into something really positive. But I, I totally hear you, Phil. I think if there are kids who instantly take a liking to you, players that instantly take a liking to you, then that's fantastic. Um, that can be honoured and worked with. If there are some, for whatever reason, instantly take a disliking and that... You know, that's fabulous to unpack the, the reasons, the whys and the wherefores for that. It could be, you know, a whole other podcast. Um, but to go in and present as someone who cares uh, is the most phenomenal platform. And um, for me as well, I, I, a part, and, and I've got a, a little bit of what I've got here to, to bring to the table is also to show that you care for yourself. I think is, it comes under the be a role model aspect of the the seven recommendations that tim brought up and that was the one that sort of stood out for me in in prepping for this i love it and, and I th we'll, we'll come on to you now but i i i'm just kind of thinking of that story again would a kid ever go home and go oh, i don't like the teacher they smiled 
Like that's not. That's I'm going to dislike them for the rest of my life because that's they smiled right. in the first week. Right. Like, so they smiled. They cracked a joke. They asked me how yeah. they were. This is going to be dreadful. It's a bit yeah. insane, that isn't it? <laughs> cool, um, Chris. Yeah, jump on in. What uh, What are you going to chat to us about? Well, in some respects, I've I've slightly gone off what I was going to talk about because I've enjoyed listening to Tim and, and talking to him a, a, about it so much. But um, the Aspen Institute call for coaches paper that Tim sent through. As I say, the uh, be a role model component was the part that stood out. Um, the developer tribe seminar that Tim did along social and emotional learning. Uh, and along with, if I've got this right, Phil, one of your previous guests, if I've got his name right, I think it was someone called Edward Hall, I believe you spoke with. And uh, what he said really, really stood out. He was talking about, remember the Titans, and um, in and amongst all of this, because uh, I haven't been able to really present one thing, it's a sort of a, an array of sort of stories, influences, um, and anecdotes really to sort of get to a, hopefully a useful point. Um, Coach Carter, Samuel L. Jackson, um, is the other sort of visual uh, that very much stood out and, and stood up for me. But I'll, I'll just start from um, a survey really briefly. Um, that was sent through by the, N the NASUWT, which is the teachers union that I've remained uh, a member of. It looks like this, all very colorful and, and nice and easy to access. Came through in August. And of course, you know, teaching has gone through huge changes as I was coaching with all things pandemic, um, use of Zoom, home learning, remote learning, you know, et cetera. And um, anyway, the statistics are tough to read in, as a profession. You know, for example, and I'm sure everyone in their own professions will, will relate to this as well. Um, but for example, you know, 81%, oh, this is of thousands of teachers, doesn't give an exact number, but thousands of teachers of a survey. Uh, and I have a question about this, which is who should be aware of these kinds of statistics? Because this is statistics about teachers being sent to teachers, but teachers who teach and work in schools know this anyway. So why are you telling us? It's other people that need to know this. Anyway, 81% of experienced work-related stress over the past 12 months, 75% feel their job has adversely affected their mental health during the last year, three quarters. 41% say their job has adversely impacted on their physical health. 25% have seen a doctor or medical profession, professional due to work-related health problems in the last year. 21% have taken medication in the last year. 11% have undergone counselling. So I kind of find this interesting is that if this is what teachers feel, people who work with people, people who are there, who have chosen the job of developing people, no matter what age. As a parent now, it has me thinking, when I take my daughter to school and she goes in, the teacher to whom, the adult to whom I impart that loco parentis, I, I, I give that responsibility to, what is their level of health both mental and physical, how well are they? What is their wellness in order to be able to work with my daughter on hers in the context of school, in that, well, in that context? So there's a line that sort of stood up. The pandemic has had and is continuing to have an enormous impact on teachers and pupils. Governments and administrations cannot expect teachers, maybe coaches, simply to soldier on without the provision of additional in-class and specialist support to help meet pupils' social and emotional needs. 
So I think that starts to marry this up a little bit with what Tim's presented. Now that last little statement, I may or may not actually agree with because it brings up the question for me, what I'm interested in is what can we take responsibility for in that picture of our own personal level of health or state of health, whatever that means for us. And Tim did say, establish a supportive team culture, set high expectations. And again, that then makes me think of Coach Carter. So when Ed Hall was speaking uh, the other day, uh, he was talking about how coaching is fundamentally a social activity and that coaching is fundamentally about relationships. And a, a coach's player-coach relationship doesn't exist in a vacuum from other player-coach relationships. And it's a complex web of relationships. It, he just, he really, I thought, I felt he painted a really good picture of the intricacy of being a coach. And as you say, if you're like a community coach, you maybe get your squad for two hours a week, plus at weekends for a match, for example. Um, to go and be dropped onto that web and have to begin to understand and pick up all of those threads simultaneously is a, it's a vast task, huge task. Anyway, um, I picked out this, this part here. Uh, he had four key points. The last one was the strategies a coach deploys that, was that a coach? The, sorry, the strategies a coach deploys that work with one person or group are not guaranteed to work with another person or group, nor are they likely to be consistently effective with the same people over time. And uh, that certainly makes me think of, you know, as seen in the professional world of sport, where a coach states that they've taken a team as far as they can. Um, Nuno Gomez did this recently with Wolves. I've taken them as far as I can. Tottenham, I'm coming. And there's that part of how does that work? What is it from a social and emotional point of view that means they've come to a point that we just cannot go further. We've, we've reached a, everything is now, it's, we can't expand this more. And it does make me think of, as a Man United fan, Sir Alex Ferguson, how did he continually evolve and revolve teams to build upon the next, upon the next, upon the next? And players would come in and they would peak and then they would, they would um, well, they would decline, you know, in, I mean that kindly, if you see what I mean. Just, I think as a, as a United fan, sometimes Sir Alex just didn't seem quite tactically as astute as the other manager. There were genuinely times where you'd sit and the, the formation would come out and you'd go, wow, how, why don't we know more than this? But mustn't ever forget to credit that man with the longevity that, as we were saying sort of before, isn't something that's really seen in the, the sports world much, um, much today. So anyway, on Tim's paper, towards the very end, in fact, the final page of the PDF, it says, to practice self-care, engage in reflection around your own social and emotional well-being. And I thought, well, maybe I can leave a listener with one or two things there, uh, because this is something I'm very interested in. I'm a, a trained mental health first aider. Um, very, very interested in um, impact of childhood and um, I'm learning as much as I can about child development, what influence it positively, what can have an adverse effect and, and so on. So anyway, so gentlemen, if you would humor me, I'm gonna ask you to do something. 
You don't have to share it, but I'm gonna ask you to do it so you can see it in front of you. First thing is, would you very kindly simply draw a triangle? It's meant to be a 2D pyramid. <laughs> so I called it a triangle. <laughs> okay, nice one. Then all I want you to do, and it really doesn't matter how many you do, but I just want you to bisect that triangle with some horizontal lines. So you've got like a very small triangle at the top and then a long, almost oblong, a quadrilateral at the bottom. Okay, now this is a little bit of a trick question, hence I'm not gonna ask you to share it, but what I want you to do gents uh, for yourselves, and I'd encourage listeners to do this as well, is in those pieces, in wherever you feel they're appropriate to go, put in there the people to whom you are a part of the lives of, or have a responsibility towards. So for me, for example, an obvious one is my daughter. But I do also have a responsibility to my cat because if I don't feed it, it can't feed itself. So to whom and to what do you have a, a set of responsibilities? And it's to get people, myself, I do this, and, and for yourself, gents, think about, you know, what are there people organizations, clubs, squads, groups, individuals, they are reliant upon you to some degree, whether it be for you know, food and clothes, a shelter, or whether it be for you know, emotional support or whether you are there as a part of their physical development as a, as a player and, and so on. So add lines if you think of more people. Um, if you can only think of two, you can rub lines out, that's all right. <laughs> um, and of course, as time goes on, you may end up adding more. Now, as this uh, doesn't necessarily make great TV or radio, I'll, I'll jump to the next part, which is this, my question. And then for, for everybody that, that's gonna try this, is how many of you, yourself, gents, have you included yourself? Oh, now, you bugger. Yeah. We'll, we'll let it that bit out too. <laughs> and it's a bit of a trick question. Have you included yourself? Now, I've done this in um, mental health seminars in the past and rather wonderfully, yes, there are people that say, yeah, I have, it's, it's in there. And I'm like, well, good, good, good. This is, this is progress. Now, my next question is where? Where have you put yourself on this, uh, on this triangle? And then various conversation ensues. My argument and my suggestion is that your person, your name, yourself, should be the first person on that triangle or that pyramid, and you should be at the top. Because if you aren't your own personal greatest responsibility, then all of the other things that you wish to influence and be a part of and be, be an, have an effect on well, unless you yourself are in good health, great condition, uh, um, have a strong mental health, um, et cetera, then what you are able to do for all those others is going to be either diminished or potentially even halted entirely. Maybe what I didn't explain at the beginning, just on immediate reflection, is to, to sort of give you the, the notion that I'm asking you to rank the order but maybe that is sort of implicit in part by it being a triangle and coming up to a point. But um, maybe you, we can edit. Maybe we can edit that bit into the beginning, Phil. 
you say that, but I went the other way. So I went, I've actually gone the ones I feel I have the biggest responsibility for are the biggest part of the triangle. So fantastic. I mean, not to suggest them some sort of, you know, genius abstract no. thinker, but I just I yeah, love it. Yeah. Turn, turn it around. Turn, turn <laughs> that triangle around. No, that's fantastic, Phil. Yeah, because that's that's then what it means and feels to you, which is ultimately where it's at. So that's the first thing. So Anybody working with people, I'd encourage them to make sure that they realize and they recognize that they are actually also a part of the picture. I have been coached by brilliant, brilliant coaches in peak physical health. I have been coached by other coaches who clearly aren't, and they've had plenty to impart and to share. But I've also been coached by someone, say, who's turned up in jeans and I've been coached by someone who's got polished boots, socks pulled up and shirt tucked in. And just it's just things to consider from the be a role model point of view. Now, I have definitely coached and taught and tutored when I've had difficult news to manage or I have felt under par or, you know, I've sprained my ankle. Of course, of course, of course, of course. But my, my, my point, my argument is that I know I'm aware to the point that I know those things need to be tended to. Otherwise, they may impact the delivery, the work that I have the good intention of doing. So for anybody that's, that's sort of drawn all their roles and their responsibilities in that ascending or descending order, depending on which way you're if they weren't on there, then hopefully that's a, a moment to go, ah, I'm a part of this picture. And then I throw in on top of that then that if we as coaches are going to take on the responsibility that the magnitude of developing other people young and old socially and emotionally then presumably and surely we have to be working on our own social and emotional development side by side in ways that are meaningful to us all the time as well otherwise it's a it, it, it ends up in that old adage of um you know do as i say not as i do so i have a little tool that i think will help with that and the second thing, gents, I'd ask you to draw is a circle. You, you can't get this one the wrong way around, Phil, or an alternative <laughs> way around, or a, an appropriate way around. It is, it is what it is. And in the middle, gentlemen, just give it a uh, like the like the uh, like a wheel, a little centre, the axle of the wheel, and that is very much, gentlemen, where you put yourself, you put your name. And then I'd like you to draw just a few spokes coming off your name to that wheel. This turning wheel is your life that goes round and you are at the center of it. And I've just drawn five spokes on it just to begin with. Now on the outside of this wheel, on every spoke, would you kindly put something that you are? Now I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Again, gents, you don't have to share this, but you know, one thing at the end of one of my spokes is dad. As I've alluded to, I've got a um, beautiful little daughter, a tearaway son, and love them both dearly, uh, but my role to them is to be dad. So that's at the end of one of the spokes. I won't put coach at the end of one of my spokes at the moment, because presently I don't coach any, any sides, but my paid job is that of tutor, but I'm also husband to my wife, and so on. I'm son to my father, uh, I'm friend to my neighbor, etc. So you could have a, a very interesting and complex collective of roles that you go into around the edge of your wheel. 
So again, it's something that you can add to uh, at any time. And this is just a visual that I hold in my mind as a bit of a coping mechanism, a bit of a, a, a conscious decision that I make. Because in this, this day and age, we go from pillar to post. Life is fast paced. And um, I do what I can to slow it down, including the, the rate at which I speak. It's just to try and take it down a notch. But the, the deal with this little visual that you have in front of you is like right now, Phil, you are an interviewer, you're podcast host. Uh, the, uh, the vibe you're putting out, if I may say so, is one of being relaxed and, and enabling Tim and I to um, rabbit about things that mean a lot to us. These are things that are dear to our heart. But that is one of your roles on the outers, on the outers, on the rim of your wheel at the end of one spoke. I don't know, in half an hour's time, you may well have to be an entirely different role altogether. I don't know what your personal diary looks like, nor yours, Tim, but I know that for mine, my actual next big seismic moment in my day is I go and pick up my little boy from nursery. So he expects me there in, in dad mode, not in, in interviewee mode, if you see what I mean. But that's very simple. There are huge complexities that you, you gents will go through as coaches from role to role to role. So the trick is, in order to make it more manageable, but ultimately to make it more authentic, is you take yourself on a journey down the spoke back to yourself. As you come out of that role and you spend as long as you possibly need at that center before you embark back out on a different spoke to become whatever else it is that you need to become. Now, I'm not promoting or suggesting sort of, you know, Jekyll at one end and Hyde at the other. It's we are who we are in each of these, these roles and these positions, authority or otherwise. But to be able to come back to self is the chance to leave behind maybe what didn't go well. It's the chance to leave behind the vocabulary that you use, the, the, the timbre of our voice, whatever it is. We, okay, that was who I was and how I was there. Now to help me and to help the people that I now go and deal with, I'm going to come back to self. Do you know what? I'm ready. This is cool. I can go up the next spoke. Or it might be, actually, I need to drive the long way to training. I need to add 10 minutes to that journey so that by the time I get there, I'm ready to be for those players, what they need me to be, which could be the person that smiles. It could be the person that actually has clear boundaries. It could be the person that actually helps in the wrecks. It could, it could be that person that says, what's the score? And they go, I'm 2-0 down, coach. And you go, that's okay. I'm here for you. So I love those two little tools that I've, I've kind of picked up um, along the way. And uh, they just sort of sit quietly behind the scenes for me as I, as I move from place to place, really. Um, they're not rocket science. A lot of these things aren't. But um, for what it's worth, there they are, gentlemen. So to start to sort of pull a little bit of a loop around, you know, high expectations of oneself and others was something that Tim mentioned. I'm asking the question of, okay, you know, people are being surveyed and, and they're reporting poor mental health, physical health, and so on. Well, what can we take responsibility for first? So the very, very first thing is to realize that we need to be at the top of our pyramid. And if that means that people underneath actually have to wait, or maybe, do you know what, today, in my co-coaching team, I normally do the warm-up, but I'm not quite ready today. And I'm, I'm going to be humble enough, nice enough to say, you know, right, bro, can, can you do it for me? 
you know, you've got, you've got 20 minutes to get your head around it. I'm going to meet and greet the players as they come in, but I need you to take that part on. Whatever it might be that just buys that time to then go in and be the best social and emotional developer of others that you can possibly be. So my, um, my concluding point uh, is, uh, uh, is a little bit of, a, little bit of a, a mishmash. It's to understand to understand yourself in order to help understand your players. And I've got two examples. If this is all right, Phil, a bit of a monologue. No, 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 go for it. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, one Tim will know and one Tim might not know. The one that Tim will know is this. When Tim played for St. John's under-16s, he was being managed by a really nice guy called Paul Ord that I've since lost contact with, and I really hope he's doing well. I'd love to see him one day. He just greeted everyone with the biggest, broadest smile. And uh, I ended up getting involved in the team midway through the season, basically just to come along and help. I had an interest in football, an interest in coaching, um, was starting to pick up my qualifications. And Paul seemed like a really nice guy to go in and co-coach with. And it meant that I got to boss my brother around on the training ground. And then I got to, got to flag him offside at every possible opportunity in the games, you know, all that kind of jazz. Anyway, um, there was a player that really that Paul didn't get on well with. And this player didn't get on well with Paul. There was something about the characters where they didn't quite, they couldn't quite see eye to eye. And I think if Paul was here, he'd be happy with me saying this because of, really because of what comes next. Paul had the social and emotional well-being of that team at heart. He was, war what I saw was that he was warm to the players. He was welcoming to the players. You know, this is a, a band of under 16 year old misfits coming from sort of all the corners of the island. And he's trying to gel them together under, you know, one, one badge. Anyway, this problem, this scenario wasn't going away. And uh, in a, a moment of inspiration or um, otherwise, I said to him, you've got to make this, this guy the captain. I was just, what? Why? Why would I do that? Why would I make him the captain? He disrupts things. He's the loudest voice in the change room. All the other lads listen to him. If it, oh, hang on a minute. And he started to see that what I was seeing in this player was you had someone that would run through a wall for you if you asked him to. For whatever reason, this kid didn't wind me up. There was something I didn't get that same emotional reaction to his behaviors. So to be able to co-coach and have someone say, hang on a minute, I can see a strength here where you're feeling or experiencing a weakness. And then Paul could do the same with me, with other players that I couldn't relate to, was possibly the strongest kind of component or element of our co-coaching team. Neither of us were sort of tactically, you know, Trapattoni, but at the same time, we both came at it with that good cop, bad cop, when we needed to be best intentions of the players. But... Paul was a much more advanced coach than I was at that time. I can't pretend that what I did or said was, was born anything from anything other than hearing stories of the likes of Trapattoni or Mourinho uh, or Sir Alex Ferguson about how they managed a player. And uh, again, to, to conclude then with, um, with Sir Alex, there's someone, however he did it, whatever work he did in order to be able to do it. If you've had the time at all to watch The United Way, which was written and directed by Eric Cantona, 
um, it was released a year or two ago, there's an amazing little part in it where it talks about um, when he got sent off at Crystal Palace. This is before your, your time, gentlemen. I appreciate him in many ways. <laughs> I'm the, definitely the greatest here. Uh, he got sent off against Crystal Palace and then he ended up kung fu kicking um, a spectator. And of course, the bans ensued. And um, Eric talks about this. He talks about how the club stayed with him. He talks about how he, he was ready to give up football, that he moved back to Paris. He talks about how Sir Alex got on a plane and flew to Paris and sat with him wherever they were in person. Not a phone call, didn't send a representative. The team will take care of itself. We've got other people doing that. I'm going to go and speak to Eric. And uh, he concludes this lovely little chapter in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the film by saying um, most clubs will have responded to my suspension with releasing me. He says, Manchester United gave me a new contract. And in the five years that he was there, Manchester United, if I've got my facts right, Manchester United won the Premier League four times. The one year they didn't win was when he was suspended. So there's a manager and an institution, stakeholders, that understood that if we can work with this person, if we can find a way to understand where they are coming from, then the benefit that they could have for us and everybody else is huge. And I love the last little part, which was, um, it's somebody like Phil Neville or Nicky Butt saying, um, you know, we all had to turn up to match day in uh, you know, the, um, the club suit and with tie and pin. They said, Eric would turn up in a crushed velvet suit with a neckerchief. And we'd be asking the gaffer, why? And he would just reply, what is Eric? So there we go, gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, just, just tons to unpick in there. I, I love the little, the little diagram pieces, especially the wheel. Um, having gone through a near breakdown when I was, I was doing an undergrad and a, and a pretty much a full-on one, I, the biggest feeling I remember from that was actually feeling like I didn't know who I was. So wow. that that little circle in the middle really resonates, and and I genuinely think the the more the bigger that circle is for me, the more I know myself, the stronger I am. And that sounds really obvious, but actually, it's a no, it's it, incredible, it, Phil. Yeah, I think it's that's been a real journey to discover that and be really comfortable with that as a strength of my character. That means I don't. I'd like to think now I don't let things bother me too much. You know, Tim talked earlier about letting go of the mistakes and letting go of the things that make you angry. I think if you can almost in my head, I'm going, the, the quicker I return to me, the quicker I can let go of that frustration and, and move on to something else. And it's, I, I don't know, I'd be interested in your guys' opinions of whether the nature of having different roles, you know, I jump from being a coach with Oxford to a coach with a community club to being um, you know, a scholarship manager to being something else. And I've almost got three or four or five mini jobs. And yes, actually, okay. you can be lots of different people in that. And I wonder whether you for you know, if you're you could be lots of different people with each of your individual one to one clients, you don't have to be the same person all the time. And it, do you know what I mean? And I, I think that's a real positive for me, because I, I can very quickly just bin something else off. Oh, well, actually, you know, the uni's really annoyed me today, but I know I've got to go and take this, so I'll just invest in this. And you try not to let it overlap. But I, I'm interested in whether that's similar for, for you guys with how you kind of move around your, your kind of circle, I guess. 
or just before perhaps Tim, because I've been I've been waffling, but I'd just like to say, Phil, I think to have that level of awareness and to behave like that, I think takes great strength. And that'll be something that others will, you know, see in you and love about being around you to be able to go, you know, that didn't go well, but I'm not going to let it have any impact on this. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really hard thing for us to do. You know, in, in human nature, we carry things for a long time unless we make conscious decisions or go through specific processes to help us to help us along Hmm. I just jump on that and just say that it's it's okay to acknowledge it in both yourself but also with the people you're working with Hmm. you know I wrote down a couple in there that after what Chris was saying one being you know we turn up at coaching sessions we may have experienced something really quite very difficult to deal with within that day I can hear myself saying to the players that I'm working and I already have a relationship with them that definitely is a factor and saying you know what I'm I'm not in the greatest place today but there is nowhere else I would want to be I Mm. want to be here coaching you seeing you play but the first five minutes if it's all right with you is just going to be a game and of course, they're delighted, right? Regardless of whether they're, they're that bothered about me having a bad yes. eight. Yes, your, your mental heard, state. <laughs> yeah, what they've heard is, we're playing a game. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah. Tim, Tim's off colour, we're having a game. Fantastic. Yeah. But it, it's okay to give yourself that time. And definitely. Uh, what it allows me is, you know, I've definitely had times where I've rolled up to training and I haven't got a great deal of time to set up you know, maybe I've got 15 minutes. And for me, that's just not enough because I faff about with it. But it gives me then that time to just go, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm in this environment. I'm coaching. These are my players. And sometimes you actually need to experience that environment before you can jump to that other hat. Uh, I think what Chris has given us there is, is a really useful tool to go back to, you know, our core before then going into that new environment. But for me, sometimes actually being there is then what brings me back up to that other part that that other spoke it takes me out to the outer outer rim and and the second one that came up for me was you know i used to coach in saudi arabia and uh, arabic parents are an interesting bunch to deal with um they're they're lovely they're they're hugely invested in their kids they're extremely um uh, extremely emotional about the development of particularly, uh, you know, their children. And of course, what happens then is you get to the end of a session and the parent is with you, bang, right? You've just, you've just let the kids go and, and suddenly, you know, this, this fella is, is there ready to talk to you uh, and some of the mothers. And, you know, what I found myself saying is it's really important that I have whatever conversation it is that you want to have with me. That is it's really important. I need two minutes to make sure that all the players are okay, that they're going home with their parents, they're getting home safely, that my you know, staff are okay and we have all the equipment in. Would it be all right with you if I met with you in five minutes over there in the cafe? Well, what has that parent heard? You've already validated them. You've already acknowledged that whatever they have to bring to you is important. But you've also let them know that right now isn't okay. And that's when you then have to push. Because very often, you know, people in those, yeah, yeah, but just quickly, just quickly. Well, if if you don't have the time right now, 
I also don't. Let's pick this up tomorrow. When's good for you? Mm, well, it's strong words, softly spoken, Tim. I think that, that, that was a big part of my learning of working out there for sure. Um, yeah. But but it's it's important, I think, to be able to communicate not all of it because that wouldn't be appropriate, but to communicate a little bit of where you are. Uh, and, and we have with my coaching staff at Sterling now, we have like a check-in moment prior to every session. What's going on for you today? And actually what's been really interesting is that I have a real problem sticking to me, talking about me. I immediately go off into, well, what we're doing today is, <laughs> and, and, and really credit to my, my staff. They pick me up on it and go, yeah, but how are you? Yeah, good. Uh, and it's so, really so you've got to role model that in order to help them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the point is, okay, where are the people that I'm working with, the players, the staff, where are they? right now where's their headspace and actually how might that affect just what we what we do today and that's all part of what you were saying earlier chris uh, of just arriving as your best self is going to allow you to work better with the people that you're trying to develop and if you'll allow me it just reminds me of a, a paper it was uh, some norwegian coaches and i would love to see this paper be repeated because uh, I haven't found it anywhere else. But there were four coaches, two that would stick to a, a very authoritarian, drill-based, uh, more sort of traditional approach to football coaching, and two that went a more games-based approach, uh, slightly more laissez-faire, I suppose, as coaching uh, behaviours, um, still involved, not abdicating, as we discussed before, but putting on a more games-based approach. But the focus of the paper, whether the participants were aware or not was about the mental health of the coaches and the report was and this is why I would love to see it repeated because I want more credibility to it but the report was that the two coaches that had moved from a more authoritarian style a more disciplinary style to more often a games-based approach it wasn't that they were doing it all the time reported that they felt that they were in a better emotional and mental state whilst at coaching. And they targeted some of those things we talked about. It gave them more time. They had opportunities to connect, to chat to their co-coach, to talk to the players, that they didn't have to work quite so hard on the practice planning or have to be in it and like, no, this is how the drill is done. Mm-hmm. And that just ties up with, with everything that we've been saying. Yeah, fantastic. And with that, then the importance of successful co-coaching collaborations, because who you work with, the then the the positive or negative impact that that could could have is is quite spectacular. And reminds me, I never, I can't unpick this more um, than just a short anecdote, uh, because at the time I it was very new to me as a concept. But again, to to go back to uh, my first school in Basingstoke, the um, the mentor that I was assigned, the person that took me under their wing, was a fantastic guy, amazing guy, also called Chris. And uh, I was in his class with him and watching him work. And, and he was, I mean, he role modeled immensely, very inspirational. But I remember that with him, he was always very, very careful with how he worked with the staff. And uh, he had us fill out various 
assessments at the beginning of the year to work out whether we were somebody who liked to instigate an idea, get an idea going, whether we were someone who could take an idea and drive it forward, or whether we were someone who liked to see things come to a fruition. Rather unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that I was somebody that liked to instigate ideas, but then found them hard to actualize. I didn't, I was, oh, I didn't know that. That was, that was interesting. But having done that, when we then had responsibilities within the school, whether it be a small little working task in a staff room through to something that needed you know, bigger management of, he knew the profiles of the people that he was working with so that he could put people together to complement each other's skill sets or to support each other's weaknesses. And in terms of a byproduct of that is tremendous mental health because I would come out of a staff room having spent 45 minutes with two other colleagues coming up with 15 amazing ideas that we just thought would be really good in whatever capacity it was in the school. But there'd be somebody else working in another group somewhere, figuring out the nuts and bolts of how any of this was actually going to move forward so, and so on. So everybody was really um, validated if, or, or sort of their, their skill set was honored. Their weaknesses weren't put to one side, we still had to face those elements as you do if you are going to develop. But there was a good balance. And that brings me to an, a fantastic lady over here who was an educational psychologist that I had the pleasure of working with, Dr. Galani. And one of the little nuggets that she gave me with, uh, that she gave me when working with people, if you're looking to change something, the process her recommendation was you make it 75% fun and 25% is that kind of graft and progress. And she says it might sound like, oh, hugely kilted, but actually get the 75 right and the 25 follows. And over time, you can address that imbalance if appropriate to. And again, you know, this, so that's something that I picked up right at the beginning of my teaching career and then at the end of my in-school teaching career of how to get the best out of people, especially those that need the development. Absolutely brilliant. I, I, there's just so much, yeah, going on there around, I guess, just self-management, how, how brave we are in, in managing ourselves and, and getting the best out of ourselves. I think. And that's, that's definitely something I've experienced. I, you know, I've worked from home now for probably the last seven or eight years. And actually, so probably well before a lot of other people did it. So yeah, I've a pioneer. I'm not sure about that, but it, I mean, you know, meetings in your dressing gown at nine o'clock are always a, a perk of the job. But I, I remember just that. And I think lots of people have found this, that because you just work at different speeds and in different ways, it can get pretty frustrating when you've just suddenly you get bombarded with your boss going, I'm working on this. I need all this information now. And you're like, well, well, I wasn't on that. Yes. And, I, and I really struggled with that when I went from having been kind of office based, you know, working in an establishment to just sat at home because I'm just like I can never get stuff done like because someone is always and actually mm. just having the capacity to have, have or the, I, whether it's brave or not I don't know that might be completely the wrong term but just to sit down with the other guys and go like how can we structure this a little bit better that if you need something from me it can't just you know we can't all be um recalling each other on a whim just because there's actually that disruption is massive to potentially the rest of the day so can we go well this when we're working on this if i don't answer for these three hours it's because i'm in deep work rather than that kind of shallow stuff and 
uh, yeah, I, I guess just finding mechanisms that work for you within your environment. And, and Tim, I love your one about Saudi Arabia. I think that's brilliant. Actually, just it look like I'll just be upfront and say to any parents, I'm not going to talk to you until 10, 15, 20 minutes after the session or whatever. But actually just having some some rules or some mechanisms in place to, to manage ourselves because everyone wants a piece, don't they, all the time. That, that's just the nature of of life now and society and everything else I guess and yeah as as much as it's I guess quite a nice feeling a lot of the time like you you want to feel engaged in and belonging and everything else that goes with that don't you but actually not not selling yourself short to the extent that you're you're just at somebody else's beck and call all the time because actually as you say you, you probably don't get that opportunity to to return to you before going on to the next thing it's just you're just constantly having to be something else or someone else's. Yeah. And completely. No, mm. completely. The last thing Phil I can bring to the table along those lines, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my notes to try and see where I'd written it, but it's something like if you don't take time to consider your wellness, uh, you'll be forced to take time to, to deal with your illness. So I think, if, if that's an appropriate point to put that in, because yeah, what yeah. you're saying there is to work with others around, to structure the job, the role, the day, the, the intention for everybody's well-being, for everybody's betterment, to maximize the best out of all of those circumstances. And uh, as you say, with Tim being really clear with a the parent there, that parent then gets the best of Tim in that coaching capacity and hopefully it meant that for yourself, Tim, you weren't in front of that parent fried and frazzled looking back over your shoulder, all that kit that hasn't been packed away because you weren't there to structure and organize that, which then means that you end up leaving the session an hour later, you get home, the shops are closed and you're having beans on toast for dinner again. You know, that kind of, that's, that's actually the, 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 the physical knock on, isn't it? And then that takes its impact upon us. And I think you only need to do that a couple of times with, with a certain group of people or a certain person before they then go, oh, yeah, no, I'll wait. I'll wait till he's done because he's, he's told me that last couple of times. It's only, yeah. It would be only very, I guess, individuals that have very poor or very little self-awareness. You'd have to keep coming back to have that same conversation going, no, no, give me five minutes. Like most people, I would say, would cotton on reasonably quickly yeah. yeah. you'd hope so anyway but the, the, the very first time that you bother to pick it up with them then yeah they're on board you know if you go back to that person and go uh, last session you wanted to talk to me and we didn't have time i've got time in 10 minutes do you still want to discuss it i go a huge huge way you know because they they feel validated they feel that their concerns are important to you Whereas, yeah, if you're just using it to go, ah, yeah, no, not today, not today, don't, don't talk to me, and then you never pick it up with them, yeah, of course they're going to feel differently about it. I'd argue then that a coach that honours that in the parent is then going to be the coach that honours that in the player, and that will be critical for that player's development and for that squad's well-being. <clears throat> and as I say, you get those lead characters uh, in the, the teams, they then become the ones that turn to other players and say, no, no, coach told you, he'll speak to you in 10 minutes. And suddenly you've got people on board helping you with that, that process, that boundary. Um, and onwards and upwards it goes. 
hundred percent guys i'm really conscious of your time that you you we probably all got our next role to be at and we've got to, you know, return to ourselves first before we go and do that. So um, I think that's probably a good, a good place to, uh, to pause it and leave it there. But um, I, I just, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This has just been, uh, you know, I think we've covered a, a massive array of topics and, and hopefully some really important stuff. Certainly it's important for me to, to have listened to some of this and, and hopefully for the listeners as well. So thank you very much um, for your time and your, your brilliant insight. It really has been great. Tim, just before we, uh, we wrap up and, uh, and round up this episode, do you want to just talk to us about the, uh, the developer tribe and uh, Recode that I know you've been working on? Oh, well, thank you, Phil. Yeah. Um, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, yes. Uh, both myself and my brother are uh, involved in what I put together with the developer tribe. Um, called Recode, which is a multiple mentor network. Um, and you know, mentoring is a very well-established uh, system for supporting professional development. And when I was reading some literature in this space, um, it did seem that a multiple mentor network was the way to go, engaging in mentoring with a number of different people, right person at the right time. But the, what we were reading of the mentees is that they were developing that network themselves. And I wondered whether particularly those who may not have been involved in the industry for a long time, whether they were able to put that multiple mental network together. And that's what got me to put Recode uh, in place. So we have 12 mentors, range of disciplines uh, that are all there to help each person uh, or each group of people uh, create their own coaching reality. And the way that we do that, what Recode stands for is co-construct deconstruct and reconstruct and you you put those backgrounds and you get recode um, and i can describe that as co-construct meaning mapping your development let's figure out what the territories are you want to go after uh, deconstruct is holding up the mirror both ourselves you know our self-awareness we've talked about that today but allowing a mentor to come into that space to help us understand what our principles what our values are do they fit with where we want to go and then, of course, if we're deconstructing, we've got to put it back together. So reconstruct. And, and how does that new knowledge fit? Uh, is there a new understanding for me as that coach? And that's that part of creating our coaching reality. What do we want ourselves to be? What do we want coaching to be for us? Uh, and, yeah, so there are 12 mentors available uh, to each uh, mentee that they can then really map out that process with me go and meet with those people and it becomes a continual process of individual development right sounds absolutely uh, yeah i think it's it's probably unique in the field at the moment and I, I think that's a really great position to be and um uh yeah just just a really pertinent point around actually using everybody's strengths rather than one person i think is fantastic so um where can people find you how can they reach out how can they get in contact yeah easiest way would be our, our website so the developertribe.mn.co uh, but you can also get hold of me just by email. So the developer tribe at gmail.com. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, really hope that listeners reach out and, uh, and get in touch. That's uh, definitely a good, a good place to start. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll round up the roundup. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to the guests for coming on and contributing to a, a really brilliant discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Thank you.